Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Appreciate you making the time on a Friday to join us here today. I'm Brian Adams. I'm the principal and founder of Excelsior Capital. We are a commercial real estate investment platform based out of Nashville, Tennessee. We raise capital on a deal-by-deal basis from a network of individuals and, and family offices and boutique wealth management firms to invest in commercial real estate, where we provide people access to direct co-investment opportunities trying to achieve something close to a double digit plus cash on cash yield. And then we also provide people with all the benefits that come from a tax perspective of direct real estate ownership. This webinar series is something that we've been doing for over a year now, where we bring in managers and financial professional services to talk about their expertise and to hopefully educate folks about some of the things that they're seeing in the market in terms of investment opportunity. And I'm I'm very excited because Crescent is a group that I've known through some family office connections for a number of years now. They are terrific, best in class, and I would really encourage you after this to learn more about the firm. They do some really fun events and they get some really spectacular people. We were talking on the pre-call. They did something recently with Mark Cuban. They've got McConaughey coming on. And, and so I definitely encourage folks to check it out. Today, I'm delighted to say that I've got Nick Parrish and Dominic DeRose with me. We're going to be speaking about e-commerce, Investing in industrial logistics development, commercial real estate, which I think is one of the more exciting sectors to be in today. So with that, I'll hand it off to the panelists. If you could maybe give us a high level on what Crescent is, and then specifically talk a little bit more about Crescent Partners. Brian, I'll take that. Uh, Thanks for having us today and and appreciate you setting this up. Thanks to everyone for joining uh, on a Friday. Uh, My name is Nick Parrish. Uh, I'm a managing director at Crescent Partners. Crescent, as, as Brian alluded to, Crescent is a uh, multifamily office and private investment platform that was started in 2017 
The business was founded by two private equity entrepreneurs, a gentleman named Abby Stein and Eric Becker. And Abby and Eric had both created wealth uh, over a 30-year career in private equity. And as they thought about their own capital and how they wanted to deploy it kind of after their private equity careers, they found a gap in the market. They found, you know, a, a, a kind of a white spot for people like them who were looking for holistic wealth solutions, family office services, but most importantly, access to private market investments. Um, and so they formed Crescent in 2017. Today, we have both a multifamily office business, which has roughly 14 billion in AUM, about 150 people and 10 uh, offices around the country. We have a multifamily office, and then we have a business called Crescent Partners, uh, which is where Dominic and I sit. And Crescent Partners' primary focus is sourcing and executing on unique uh, private investment opportunities, either directly or with, with skilled operating partners. And so today, that spans about 15 different investments that we've made, about a billion dollars in equity capital raised and deployed over the last two years. Primary focus is on uh, private equity. Um, direct private equity opportunities and co-investments, and then private real estate. And we're going to spend some time on private real estate today, but that includes multifamily development, office development, logistics, uh, hospitality, qualified opportunity zones. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking specifically about what we're seeing in the logistics space today. Thanks, Nick. Dominic, could you give maybe just a little bit of background on yourself before we dive into the subject sure. matter? Sure. So it's lovely to be here. It's to echo Nick's sentiment. Uh, I'm happy everyone's here on a Friday. Hopefully you guys all have a great weekend and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. My background, so I'm, I'm Director of Investments for Crescent Real Estate uh, Partners. And my kind of almost singular focus is, is really in the logistics and, uh, and warehousing space. Um, my whole career has been in industrial real estate. So came over, joined the team about eight, eight months ago. And um, you know, we're really excited about this space and, and really looking forward to talking about it with more detail with you and, and why we think logistics space is, is underinvested in and, and undersupplied from the user perspective. So one housekeeping matter uh, for anybody attending, you can use the Q&A button at the bottom if you have a specific question or you want one of the panelists to dive deeper into a particular subject matter, please use the Q&A and I'll make sure that they address it without interrupting the flow of the conversation. So Dominic, let, let's start with you and you know, jump right into it based on your last comment. You know, why do you think this is such a big opportunity today? I mean, the real answer is how much time have we got? Because we could go about this for a long time. You know, broadly speaking, at the widest level, there's, there's a major sea change in supply chain networks. Loosely speaking, the previous model was really focused around minimizing transportation costs from a warehouse to an uh, individual retailer's store network um, with some importing and exporting mixed in there as well. But now what we're seeing is really a shift from supply chains serving store networks, serving population zones. So really what that's driven is this almost decentralization of warehousing. This has been happening the last four or five years, and it's really been accelerated over the last year. And I think, you know, I could really belabor the point on e-commerce and, and I don't want to dismiss it, but it's easy. We understand it. We get it right over the last year, regardless of if you're in this space or not, you've had hundreds, thousands of packages 
taken to your door, whether it was from Amazon, whether it was delivered by you know the the carriers, UPS, FedEx, post office, Postmates, Uber Eats, you know, Instacart, whoever, right? And really, when you kind of take a step back, those goods come from somewhere, right? And really, a, what's a what's a great stat is for every single square foot of retail that closes, you need three. Or excuse me, for every single square foot of retail that closes, you need three square feet of retail to satisfy that same demand. And it's not like we're buying any less. If anything, we're probably buying more, but we're really buying differently. And the end effect of that is that it really stresses the old supply chain and really wants to promote this investment to newer, more modern logistics facilities and more locations. So that's the big picture. You know, you could really narrow this down to a lot of factors, right? So we talked about e-commerce. Another one that's really significant is just simple inventory, right? With e-commerce, you need more inventory because you're carrying more SKUs. But just if you're, you know, a manufacturer, right? And an, an article came out the other day in the Wall Street Journal about Toyota moving a little bit away from just-in-time manufacturing. So they're going to start inventorying their parts. So for a 5% increase, if you take all kind of, inventories in the US. If you increase it by just 5%, that equates to another 700 million to a billion square feet of demand. So that's a really big driver as well. And then kind of another driver, which I don't know if it's a net positive for demand, but it's certainly a net positive in some markets, is really what's what's known as port diversification. And more importers are trying to move their goods more efficiently in and out of the United States. And you know, a lot of this is driven by the widening of the Panama Canal to take larger ships and also the dredging of some of the southeast ports. But we're really seeing demand from importers in Houston, in Savannah, in Charleston, which 15 or 20 years ago, if you were bringing goods in from Asia, you go to L.A. Long Beach only. So those containers need to go somewhere. And, and that's another kind of demand driver in some markets, you know, maybe not a net positive, but certainly positive for the market. And, and I mentioned the size and, and the scope of, of inventory changes. But on e-commerce, you know, for every $1 billion in e-commerce sales, 1.25 million square feet is needed to satisfy that demand. Right. So if you take kind of the long run, longer run, uh, year over year growth of e-commerce discount last year, last year it grew 40% second quarter year over year. The long-term average is about 15%. And if you're growing e-commerce adoption at 15% a year, that equates to about 250 million square feet of uh, demand just for e-commerce alone. So we're really seeing a lot of these demand drivers pushing you know, users into new markets, into new buildings, into you know, just general demand. And you know, we could talk a little bit about the product, right? And I think the, the other effect of this is that there's really been a flight to quality in industrial buildings. But a brand new industrial building is a little different from a five or 10-year-old industrial building and a lot different from a 20-year-old industrial building. And you see this in things like clear height, truck circulation, loading, dock equipment, trailer parking, car parking, because you know the old model is really moving pallets around. You only needed a handful of forklift drivers to, to move products in and out of a warehouse. Now, if you're moving, you know, individual water bottles, you know, Nick would have to go to a rack, pick it out, put it in a box and ship it to me. And that's just a bigger, more labor intensive 
process and you need more workers in a warehouse. So a lot of these older buildings don't work for modern users because they don't even have car parking. So little things like that are really also driving kind of modern logistics buildings and modern construction. Dominic, maybe one other point to add there. Talk about size. I think that's another trend that that I've seen. You know, what used to constitute a big logistics facility, you know, is now a smaller, mid-sized deal. People, for that same reason, just need more space. Talk about square footage. Yeah, so size is another factor. You know, buildings are getting bigger. Tenants need more space, right? Five, 10, 15 years ago, five, 600,000 square feet was kind of a banner deal. That's like one of those deals. If, if you're a broker, if you're a user, if you're a developer, you're like, man, we leased a 500, 600,000 square foot building. How great is this? Now we're seeing million foot deals, you know, pretty regularly, you know, relative to 2019, uh, the average size of the hundred largest deals of 2020 were 17% bigger than they were in 2019. And it was about 1.1 ish million square feet, 1.05 million square feet. So there's a really big push for these larger buildings from users. And, and when you think about it, it makes sense. One, you know, previously, if you're using the store network, the store also functions a little bit as a warehouse, right? Once it, it's, it's holding stuff, right? Now, if you don't have a store to hold stuff, you inherently need more space in your warehouse. That's, that's one reason. The rent of these buildings are not significant, right? From a user's perspective, you know, if on average, Rent in a warehouse logistics building is about 5% of the total occupancy costs. So if you take a building that's 20% larger than what you thought you might need, it's not a huge amount of money and it gives the user a lot of flexibility. You know, if you need 900,000 square feet, you're not going to fit into an 800,000 square foot building, but you probably want to take a million square feet because that gives you a little extra space to grow and not be crunched in your warehouse and have some sort of pinch. And, and it just makes the operation so much more efficient and throughput through the warehouse higher. So I think, Brian, one of the things on the opportunity set that, you know, what, what Dominic's talking about, obviously you've got this strong macro tailwind, you've got increase of demand, you've got more absorption from, from retailers. I think the size piece is really important because it's in part what drives the opportunity that we're pursuing. I think there's there's a ton of demand, you know, in the market for logistics buildings, but the overwhelming amount of capital that's out there wants to buy existing logistics buildings. They don't want to develop it. And, you know, there's a huge shortage of these types of buildings that need to be developed, but they're bigger, right? Traditionally, you would have these kind of one-off developers who, you know, could go develop a building for a you know, couple million bucks. They would cobble that money together or, you know, do it personally. And that was largely what funded this, this logistics you know, development. Today, as these buildings get built bigger, that requires more equity capital, which means bigger check sizes, bigger investors. And that kind of falls out of that range of what was traditionally the, you know, the development network for these projects. So you have to go up market. But a lot of the traditional owners and investors in logistics, the pension funds, you know, the big real estate firms, they don't want to develop. And so there's a unique opportunity here, you know, with supply demand imbalance that we need more supply, we need bigger, more modern facilities, but there's a vacuum of capital willing to do that. And so that's, you know, thinking about how, how, how and where and why we're excited about this opportunity is there's this, this seeming gap there. And we're going to try and, you know, we are trying to step into that, take advantage of that kind of mismatch of capital. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that. 
why don't these groups want to take on the, the development component of it? Is it a, a risk component or issue? You know, there's a few reasons. I think one of it's just risk. You know, if you're a pension fund and you want kind of core type returns, why would you take the risk to have an opportunistic development return? Right. It's just not a proper alignment. You know, if you're a REIT, you know, REITs, you want dividend yield. Building vacant buildings doesn't really help you with that. And industrial REITs do develop, but it's just they're frankly not that good at it. You know, they could do deals, but it's it's just not in their DNA. Right. So industrial development has always been this really entrepreneurial environment um, with local or regional developers. And as Nick said, when when you're doing a hundred thousand square foot building 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it's not a huge amount of equity. And you could usually either raise that from your friends, your family, your country club, you know, the principals in the office. But as deals get bigger and the check sizes get larger, it's it's opened up space, you know, for an entrepreneurial capital provider for this business, really. And so that's kind of the main reason why. I mean, that's one of them. And then another one is just development and real estate development is always capital short. It's inherently capital short because it's it's a risky, it's a riskier endeavor, right? But we feel that there's a lot of mitigating factors for industrial. You know, we talked about the demand, but the timelines are compressed. You know, these are short term developments, right? It takes eight to 12 months to build a warehouse, depending on kind of where you are, how big it is, what the seasonality is. So the the, the development period is not very long. And also the user demand is there, right? So, you know, we think that there's a dislocation between the perceived risk of this and the actual risk, you know, particularly where we want to go, which is really what we're calling growth and logistics markets. You know, we feel that there's enough capital for this strategy in kind of the gateway markets, you know, the major markets everyone knows about, you know, Seattle, LA, Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, New York, New Jersey, but really where we see the the biggest the biggest hole in the market from the user perspective, and that's really what drives our whole thing is people coming to lease your buildings. That's what you need is really in kind of what we're calling growth and logistics markets, which are markets like you know, Indianapolis, Columbus, and Louisville, which that little triangle, you could serve about 70% of the population within a single day's drive. And there's also some major logistics drivers there as, as well. You know, the highway systems, one, uh, the UPS world port in Louisville is, is another. The FedEx air freight hub in Indianapolis is another big driver there. So there's there's a lot of demand drivers there and why users want to go there. Um, and then other types of markets that, that we really see an opportunity in is what we're calling growth markets. And that's Phoenix, Denver, Salt Lake City, places like that, that haven't really had the string of industrial development and, and the base of developers over the last 20 years. Right. So I'm in Chicago. There's probably... 25, 30 really, really good industrial developers in Chicago, and they end up bidding sites up to effectively a marginal cost. You know, in these other markets, there's a lot more value. So let's get into a little bit of the fund and the investment thesis and, and the profile of these acquisitions. I think you've already have made one or two investments. Are these all ground up spec development type deals? Yeah. Yeah. The fund will be ground up spec, right? So, and I'll, and I think the timeline really helps understand this, right? So month zero, we're calling that land acquisition. Between negative three and negative six is, is kind of where we start and set up the, the joint ventures with the developers and find the deals, right? So we close in month zero. 
the goal is always to start construction the next day, but it's always a week, two, three, four weeks later. So you start construction nearly immediately. As I mentioned earlier, development timelines are really eight to 12 months. Let's just assume they're 12, just be conservative. So month 12, you finish your building. The way that we underwrite them is month effectively 24-ish. We start getting a tenant and then, you know, you, you sell off to, you know, we're building up into the right in an opportunistic area and we're selling low into the left to core buyers. So once we have the leasing done, we've created our value and we let someone buy it at a much lower cap rate than our yield on cost. So really, when you look at it, this whole schedule on an individual deal is anywhere between 24 and 30 months. And that's really our goal. And it's it's really a fast moving strategy. So that's that's what it looks like from a timing perspective. And it's all going to be ground up development by and large. I mean, there might be something that pops up, but that's not really our expectation. The expectation is really to find best in class sites, the best developers and what we're calling, which I just mentioned, you know, kind of growth and logistics market, which happen to be broadly speaking, Midwest logistics, and then Sunbelt growth. I mean, it's kind of how it looks inherently. And and in terms of product, the physical product, I mean, really, as we mentioned, we want to do bigger buildings. You know, this this kind of universe is called big box. We want to do big box buildings, and we want to do buildings uh, that really appeal to logistics users. So that's e-commerce, 3PLs, retailers. And they lease most of the space. They're they're the big kind of consumers of demand. You know, less so, you know, food and beverage is kind of another one, but that's kind of hit or miss. So these buildings, as I mentioned, they're they're modern logistics buildings. They're 40 foot clear. They have 195 foot truck courts. They have counterclockwise circulation, a lot of car parking, a lot of trailer parking. I mean, it's it's funny, you know, everyone looks at you know, fancy office buildings and fancy apartment buildings and talks about the amenities and look at how great this this apartment building has a basketball court or a movie theater or a pool or whatever. Our amenities in industrial space are truck court depth and clear heights and stuff that no one ever really gets to use, although some have a little outdoor area, picnic area, whatever. But, you know, that's that's really what leases these buildings is really the functionality of them. I mean, it's a it's a pure function play. So that's helpful to know who the end user is. But I assume you're stabilizing these and, the, and then selling them shortly yes. thereafter. Who's the end buyer? What do they look like? So the buyer is, you know, people who want core exposure to logistics real estate. And what that effectively works out to be is, you know, REITs looking for a dividend yield, pension funds looking for, you know, annual returns and sovereign wealth funds who really like industrial as a way to kind of get their money into the U.S., you know, the beauty of owning industrial long term is it's a very low capex product, right? Your your NOI is kind of what you walk away with, especially if it's a brand new building. You know, if you have an older industrial building, eventually you'd have to repave it. You have to put a new roof on whatever. You get a brand new building for 15 years. You don't have to do much to it. Keep a little bit in reserves, but by and large, your rent is what goes in your wallet at the end of the day. So those are really the buyers and there's a huge demand for it. And and it's a lot of it's driven by just kind of the just good things that are happening in industrial and the growth that we've seen in the market. Um, and a lot of it is is really driving cap rates down to record lows and mind boggling lows in some in some cases. Yeah. So what, what are these exit cap rates looking like these days? We're conservative. We underwrite way more than we should, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> You know, we're we're gonna over deliver on a lot of these. You know, it's it's really market by market. 
But by and large, cap rates in, in kind of core markets, let's call them broadly four to four and a half. You know, and credit's a big factor in this. You know, if you lease something at Amazon, if you lease something at Walmart, if you lease something at Target, you get a little bit, you get a lot of pickup on that credit. You know, if you lease something to a 3PL, it's, it's still pretty good, right? And then in these kind of non-core markets, logistics and growth markets, it, there's a little more of a variation. You know, Phoenix is getting very close to LA. So let's call that mid fours. You know, same thing for markets like Louisville and Columbus relative to Chicago. So let's call those four and a half to four, seven, five. You know, and, and, you know, frankly, we think there's a lot more room to grow, or I should say cap rate compression, not grow, but there's a lot more room for cap rate compression in these logistics and growth markets because as the supply chain becomes decentralized, why should the capital be sent still be centralized in these gateway markets? And what'll end up what we think is gonna happen and what we're seeing right now is really that cap rates between LA and Phoenix, Indianapolis and Chicago, you know, Atlanta and Savannah, Miami and Orlando, you know, these kind of pairs, they start compressing and getting much closer to each other because, you know, the users need to be in Phoenix, just as much they do need to be in in LA. And and what does the profile look like in terms of the user base? Are you leasing these out to one tenant or is it multi-tenant? The beauty of the design of these buildings is that they're designed to be multi-tenant, right? And that just gives you the flexibility in the lease up and and it gives you optionality moving forward. So they're all designed multi-tenant. If it's a cross dock building with, with docks on either side, really they're only can accommodate two tenants. You know, if you have a single load building with docks on one side, they're generally set up to supply or to accommodate three or four tenants, depending on how many entrances you put in the building. But by and large, you know, especially in the big box space, there's a premium to have a single tenant building for things like security. If you've got a high value product, you know, if you're distributing electronics, you don't want other people in your truck or you want to have it fully fenced. You want to have the security and the safety of that. So by and large, you know, they end up being single tenant buildings, uh, but they're designed to be multi-tenant just to give everybody optionality. And that's kind of another thing talking about the buyers. You know, it's not uncommon anymore in industrial real estate to sell vacant buildings or sell partially leased buildings up, I guess, down the chain from up and to the right to low and to the left. You know, these, the value add buyers like really you know, in a lot of cases, we'll pay a lot of money for a little bit of vacancy in a building because they think that they can grow rents. They think that their, you know, their their underwriting could be more aggressive than ours. And if their underwriting is more aggressive than ours, the, the calculation is pretty easy. You want to sell to the person who thinks your building's worth more than you. So that's that's just kind of a little tangent there on, on going back to your previous question. But yes, they're, to answer the question, they're designed multi-tenant. They're probably single tenant. And what what term are we talking about here on these leases? Generally, ten years. You know, there's there's a bit strangely in some markets there's a bit of a push from owners and developers to do shorter leases because they feel that there's going to be a lot more rent growth, and that allows the next buyer to bump rents. You know, I, I think that's really kind of a phenomenon that happens in the gateway markets where you're ultra land constrained, somewhere like the Inland Empire, uh, South Florida. Uh, Seattle. But, you know, I always think that having 10 plus years of term is good, you know, and that's because at the end of the day, and and it goes back to what what I mentioned earlier, you know, these buildings, your NOI is basically what you're putting in your pocket. And if that's the case, you really want, you want that secure cash flow. And that's why 10, that's why credits 
a big factor in this in terms of big factor of it. And, and really, you want to see that commitment to the building from the users. So uh, I know you all have made two investments already today. We alluded to that earlier. If you could maybe choose one or, or talk about both in, in generalities to use as an example of how you source the opportunity, find the sponsor, work with the developer, talk about the location selection. I know you mentioned growth and logistic markets. Kind of give us maybe a, a, your thought process on, on how you identify an MSA that you want to enter into. Yeah, I'll go through these really, really quickly because I think you know our two kind of seed projects are really emblematic of what we want to do. You know, the first is a 1.1 million square foot spec development in or excuse me, Indianapolis with Heinz. Heinz is a long-term partner of ours. We've done I think over 20 deals with Heinz from the office building that I'm sitting in to multifamily and mixed use type stuff. So they're they're a very close partner of ours. And we told them we're doing logistics. And they said, we're doing this building in Indianapolis and you want to do it. And we said, yes. And we you know, negotiated a joint venture agreement and, and uh, you know, pretended to not like each other for a couple of days. And, and then now we love each other again. But the, the interesting thing about that is it really goes back to kind of the idea of scarcity of big box. Between Chicago, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Louisville, right now there's two existing buildings over 900,000 square feet. We're building 1.1 million square feet there. And this goes back to what I mentioned earlier about, about Indianapolis is this key logistics market, both in terms of you know kind of trucking and your who you can get to within a day, and also your access to FedEx in Indianapolis and Louisville, or excuse me, UPS in Louisville. You know, our site's on the south side of the market, so it's just a you know straight shot down I-65, about an hour and a half, and you know you're in Louisville and you're at the at the UPS World Hub. So, really great. We're seeing really good activity on that. You know, another project we're working on is in Phoenix. Again, it's a growth market, right? It's CB tracks growth as net absorption as a percentage of inventory. It was the number one big box growth market in the U.S. last year. So. You know, there's a lot going going on in Phoenix. You know, I think there's a lot going for it in regards to people moving there. And, you know, if the supply chain's moving to supply people, more people need more space. But also there's kind of a, a really interesting dynamic in Phoenix relative to L.A. and especially the Inland Empire, which is which is very tight. It's hard to find land in the Inland Empire. If you do, it takes you a very long time to entitle it. Super low vacancy, super high rents. So if you need a million square feet and you want to be in the Inland Empire, at sometimes your closest building's in Phoenix. And if it's not in Phoenix, it's in Bakersfield, which is two hours from the Inland Empire and still in California. If you're going to go two hours from the Inland Empire to the middle of Bakersfield, you might as well go to Phoenix where there's people there, right? So there's a lot of demand there, you know, and, and we're really excited about these projects. And what are the deal size that we're talking about here in terms of uh, initial capitalization? So generally speaking, I think the sweet spot is really around $25 million. I think that's for a million square feet. That's kind of what it costs. I mean, and there's variance between land costs and between markets. There's variance between construction costs and markets. But generally speaking, it's in that 10 or excuse me, 20 to $30 million range. You know, if you get into a more infill market, it could be a little bit more. You know, if you go to Seattle, it's it's probably $50 million of capitalization to do a million square feet. So, you know, we think that our sweet spot on a single deal basis is, is really between 10 and 40 million ish. Right. And then, you know, if you're doing 
a multi-building campus type development, multiply it by two, multiply it by one and a half, two and a half, you know, kind of whatever it is. But that's generally kind of the sweet spot of where we think that that these deals will land. And, and I know by speaking to some friends anecdotally who are in this space in Nashville, the challenge has not been the leasing side of it. The challenge has been finding the dirt, right? Within, within a, especially interstate accessibility, somewhere that you want to be long-term, it's been a real challenge. Are you saying the, the same thing in your markets that you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, it's less so in, in some markets, right? You know, the Phoenix really benefits from what they call the Loop 303, which is kind of a, a ring road on the far west side of town that goes up and over. And, and that's really opened up a lot of land for development. It's kind of the, the highway was installed in the last 10 years, and that opens up the land. And it's, there's been kind of a little bit of a land rush there, but there's certainly pennant demand to accommodate it. You know, other markets, yeah, it's hard if you want to, especially if you want to find infill sites, you know, if you want to find a site in, you know, within the first or second ring of Chicago or Atlanta or Nashville, I mean, that's hard because people move there, people live there and it's, it's difficult, you know, but if you want to find bigger sites to do bigger buildings, yeah, it's still hard, but it's a little bit, shouldn't say it's easier, the, the issues are different, right? When you're doing bigger buildings, you have more development put on things like accessing utilities, annexation agreements, you know, stuff like that, where the land's there, it's just, it's just a little bit more of a trouble to get it kind of into production. And you mentioned a flight to quality and you're targeting some, some markets that, that we also have experience in. And so I believe the growth story there, what's the overall outlook for the sector and, and how has COVID changed some of that in, in terms of your internal expectations for growth, opportunity, and returns? Everything that was happening before COVID is happening after COVID twice as fast or three times as fast or whatever metric you want to do. I mean, industrial real estate, I mean, there's no getting around it. And I hate saying it because I know it's been a hard year for a lot of people, but it's been a, a, probably the best year ever for industrial real estate um, and, lo- and particularly logistics real estate. And a lot of that is because these trends of e-commerce and supply chain, you know, shifts have been accelerated hugely. And, and you know, a lot of people ask us, well, oh, 2020 was so good for, for warehousing. Do you think that kind of this big, it'll turn off the users will do their deals? And, you know, what I respond to that is what I mentioned earlier, right? If adoption continues, e-commerce adoption continues at the rate it was at before you know, the last year, it's going to drive demand for nearly 250 million square feet a year. You know, if after COVID and we have the supply chain shock of, you know, about a year ago now, where companies can't get their goods to manufacture, companies can't get their goods to sell, that will drive inventories. And with more inventory, that requires more space. And then also, as you mentioned, with the port diversification, you know, these Markets are going, some markets are going to grow a lot more than others. I think they're all going to grow, but the key is really to, to skate where the puck is going, not where this, not to where the puck's coming from. Right. And I think, you know, if you look back at the last 30 years of, of warehouse development, you know, you can't keep doing it the way you have before. And Nick, maybe let's, let's pivot to you a little bit to talk about some of the logistics associated with the fund. How does it work in relation to Crescent? 
Who is it open to, you know, timeline, return expectations, et cetera? Yeah. So I think, you know, if, if you take a step back and look at, you know, how and where we deploy capital, you know, I think per my earlier introduction, you know, we try to think like a single family office. We represent this pool of, of large families, about 13 billion in assets. So we try to find opportunities like this where we have flexible capital that allows us to be opportunistic and step into these kind of dislocations and, and areas where our capital can bring value. So we're excited about this one. We think this is a complement to a lot of the other real estate we do, which is much more kind of longer term cash flowing value creation. As, as Dominic mentioned, this is much more of a, you know, you know, frankly speaking, you know, buy, build, lease, sell. And it's, you know, much shorter time frame. And I think what you'll find is the, the fund is constructed as such. So our objective with this, we're raising a pool of capital, seeding it with our own capital, uh, along with a group of families who have already committed to this. It'll be a 200 to $250 million fund. I think based on, you know, what Dominic's described, you know, there's, there's far more opportunity out there than, than just that. But our view is that's a good amount of capital to raise pretty quickly and put to work. So we're going to raise that between now and the end of this year, though I think that could get truncated. We, we are already about $100 million in into that number. So the goal is to raise that, get it deployed very quickly over the next, call it 18 months. We'll look to build a portfolio of these projects, so call it maybe eight to 10 different projects of the characteristic that, that Dominic described. The, and that again, that capital we a combination of ours and a group of family offices, and then we are, you know, we've kind of opened this up to other external investors. We will have a five-year term, though I think in reality that is is probably erring on the conservative side. It's building us some cushion, but as Dominic noted, this is a much more kind of quick return on capital. Um, we didn't really talk about it, but you know, you can do the math if you if you think about you know yield the cost and the you know. Dominic, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, six to seven percent selling at a cap rate of a you know high threes, low fours, you can you can see how you can get to a pretty attractive, you know, what is a high, you know, double digit, you know, high kind of high teens type IRR profile on this. This is a this is a return on capital play. This is not, again, we we have a lot of other real estate holdings that we want to grow and cash flow. We're not in this, you know, or you're not in this for the cash flow. This is much more about you know, kind of capturing that, um, that multiple over that couple of year period. So that's, that's where we're at. You know, the fund is, is open and, you know, we've got these couple projects underway. So we've already got capital to work and in the ground and we'll, you know, keep raising capital and keep identifying projects and until we can. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've hit the ground running both on the, the deal side and the fundraising side. So that's terrific. We're almost at the 45 minute mark and we'll be mindful of everyone's time. What would be the best way for folks? I'm always happy to facilitate introductions if people want to reach out to me directly, but what is the best way for folks to learn more about Crested in general, the specific opportunity, and maybe this fund? Sure. I'm probably your best point of contact. I mean, we have, you know, Crested. So um, CrestedPartners.com is, is the website. That's not going to have specific fund information, but it does have contact information. And then you know, certainly people can feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to share my contact information with, with anybody that might have interest in doing that. And we've got data room, materials, et cetera, all available for those who are interested. And if anyone wants to geek out about truck court depth, feel free to call me. <laughs> <laughs> I get the boring amenities. 
That's right. Well, you know, I want to thank you both for the time and the opportunity here. I think industrials and logistics, uh, especially on the development side, considering all the growth in that sector makes all the sense in the world. And it sounds like you've working with some great sponsors and developers. So I'm sure it'll be an absolute home run. But again, I'm always happy to facilitate introductions afterwards. I want to thank both the panelists for, for coming on today and joining us and definitely encourage anyone listening today live or, or after the fact to reach out because Crescent provides some really good content, terrific educational pieces, and they're doing some really cool things in the alternative space. In my opinion, probably one of the best in class multifamily office RIAs doing alts today. So hopefully we'll get an update from your efforts here soon and then maybe talk about some of the other opportunities that you guys have coming down the pike. Happy to do it. We appreciate you having us. Same. Thanks, Brian. Really, really enjoyed this. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Donovan. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.